I V M. It's a noisy market day in the great city of Shavatthi, the capital of the kingdom of Koshala, and one of the most crowded places in the vast Gangetic plains. I say great city because that's what sources from the time call it, Mahanagara, but it actually spreads out over the gigantic area of one and a half square kilometers. That's about the size of a modern apartment complex. How things have changed in India since then. Boats are arriving at the docks on the Acheravati River, along which the city has sprung up, shaped roughly like a shallow triangle. The river feeds a moat that surrounds Shavatthi, and bullock carts have been trickling past the bridges on the moat into the city gates all morning. Let's flag one down. Ah, uh, there we go. A middle-aged woman is stopping for us. Her hair is sprinkled with white, and she wears nothing except a spotless white garment tied around her thighs. Going to the market, ma'am? Why, yes, young traveller. The harvest season has just ended, and King Pasinadi's officers came to our village to tell us that the market has been set up. Are you and your companion going there as well? What are you here to buy? You don't look like the type who has anything to sell. Well, she seems like a no-nonsense lady. Well, ma'am, uh, we're in the market for that most priceless of gifts, knowledge. Ah, knowledge is it? I see. Well, young man, the liquor shops are not too far from the market, so it's on my way. Hop on now. She waves a stick and shouts, and her bullocks trundle on. We lean back on the fragrant bundles of rice she's transporting while she chatters about the price of rice and how difficult it is to feed her workers these days when she's constantly being asked by brahmins and sammannas, a term used to refer to renunciants like the Buddhists, for free stuff. It's clear that she doesn't have a very high opinion of philosophers. She is much more interested in the simple things like keeping her grandchildren's tummies full. As the cart trundles through Shavatthi, we see people very different from the wealthy crowds of Ujjain that we visited in the second season of Echoes. Their jewelry, for one, is much thicker and clunkier. Their hairstyles more bulbous. Their clothing simpler. There aren't as many goods on offer in the market, though. What we can see, perfumes and cloth and carved wood, is still quite impressive. Evidently imported from across the riverine highways. That spread across the Gangetic plains. Our friend tells us that she needs to go speak to her usual agent and drops us off in front of a pub. It's a bit early in the day for me, but I've heard that foreigners are strange that way. Now, much as I could do with a drink, my friend, we are actually here for something more interesting and probably more mind-melting. You see, what with the crowds of people congregating on Shavatthi today, all the religious groups that live in the outskirts of the city have turned up in force. Small groups of skinny people, head shaved, wearing drab robes of varying quality and color, are going around with begging bowls. Every now and then, stopping to talk to people, but there, under that people tree, a dense crowd is gathering. Let's squeeze through.、Uh, excuse me, sir. Sorry about that, ma'am. 
Ah, okay, there we go. Three people are sitting on a mat in front of the tree. One of them is a young lady, her head shaved, wearing clean but tattered robes of white. She's so thin, her skin seems to be hanging off her bones, and her hands and feet bear the scars of a hard life spent in relentless wandering. Her eyes catch us briefly, and we're seared by a gaze as bright and burning as that of any of the kings and emperors we've seen before on Echoes. Next to her is a middle-aged Brahmin, evidently a landowner of some sort. He's a little overweight and he's breathing deeply. His eyes are steely and determined. Making up the third member of this unlikely trio is a young friend Shorty the Buddhist monk. Looking fit and healthy in the prime of his youth, his dark skin gleaming in the sunshine as he grins at the crowd. The Brahmin straightens and graces us all with a dignified look. Then he begins to speak. I repeat to you all what my fathers and grandfathers taught me. We receive this wisdom from the highest principle, the greatest authority, passed in an unbroken line from teacher to pupil, from times immemorial. We perform this ritual that our families have kept safe for centuries. Through these rituals, we ensure the proper coming and going of the seasons, the orderliness of all things. It is utter nonsense for the Shramanas to accuse us of being selfish. I say to individuals like this Lord Buddha, who is he to call himself a blessed one anyway? If you till the soil like we do, if you raise the crops and feed your followers like we do, then you can eat. Instead, you people beg and you refuse to give due respect to us Brahmins. Now we do the correct duties of the householder. We perform the correct rituals associated with every stage of human life. This performance of rituals, doing all of the correct things, this is karma. Only those who behave well and do their karma will be rewarded with a place in the worlds of the gods or transcend beyond the roof of the world to merge with the sublime universal principle of Brahman. Good people, listen to what your elders and your betters tell you. We have only your interests at heart. Master, what a profound argument. What sophisticated logic. What a terrifying warning to those of us not born into your blessed upper caste. But I assure you that you do not have it right. How can rituals with slaughter living beings and a constant entanglement in the pleasures and struggles of daily life lead to any sort of liberation from this world of suffering? The great Guru Parshva, the true blessed one, has enlightened us. All of us, no matter what our caste or species, everything around us from ants to stones contain within them a life force. A thing of pure lightness, the jiva. The jiva, if left to itself, will float to freedom at the very top of the universe. But doing anything, and I mean anything, in this universe creates small particles of karma, which hold the jiva down. If you remove a stone from its place when you are tilling your fields, you are creating particles of karma. 
If you walk around uncaringly, you trample on insects with the same jiva as you or I. Thus, our very lives, by the fact of our existence, cause this karma to accumulate. The only solution to this, the only way to liberate the jiva, is to engage in unrelenting austerities, to scour the body and the jiva until they are free of the weight of karma. Madam, you've said something of greater sense than the good master here. Karma indeed governs everything. But how can everything cause karma just by existing? How can there be only bad karma? Is there no way to improve one station in the universe without torturing yourself with all these pains and agonies? Lord Buddha says there is. And I believe he's as much of a lord as anyone, no matter what you say. Good people, here's the simple truth of existence. If you do good things, you get good karma. If you get good karma, you are reborn in a better life. And everyone can get good karma. Not just ascetics or those trained in the Vedas or those who can afford to pay Brahmins for expensive rituals. If you are a good person, if you do good things because they are good, you get good karma. It is planted like a seed and it blossoms into a better rebirth for you. Karma is not about rituals tied to caste or about austerities, my friend. Karma is about good intentions. It is as simple as that. Karma is for us all. It is a means to our salvation. Whether you are a Samanna or a Brahmana, whether you are a quotation or a merchant, whether you are a carpenter or a cobbler, donate to the Buddhist Sangha. You will help us spread the good word of the Buddha to all the world and thus improve your karma. Our liberation is open to you all. The crowd rumbles assent and Shorty, beaming, sets his bowl in front of them as people come forward to bow and give him offerings. Well, it looks like the Buddhists are starting to gain momentum as a movement, doesn't it? We saw Buddha begin with barely a few dozen followers in the last episode, but now his monks have clearly become quite influential in a very important city. Ah, young traveller, still here I see. I half expected to see you spread out on the ground outside that bar where I left you. Look at this fellow I found there. Doesn't he look priceless? These city people, I tell you. There's something familiar about the man. Something about his face, his expression, the garland of flowers he's got draped around one year. Bhashpa? From Ujjain? Bhashpa? Ujjain? I've never even been to Avanti. As the middle of freaking nowhere. No, my friend, you can call me Mr. Brainy. I'm a proponent of the great school of Charvaka, the wisest and only true path to liberation in all the Gangetic Plains. You should listen to him, young man, if it is knowledge that you seek. Now, I am a simple woman. I don't know about all these fancy ideas. What do I care for karma and dharma and sacrifices? My son was conscripted by King Pasenadi for his army and I do not know if he is alive or dead. My daughter-in-law and I have four children to feed and take care of. All these big ideas are for the wealthy and the lucky householders and townspeople such as yourself. 
my gods are the snakes and the yakshas and they have always cared for me i am grateful to them for what they do for us there is nothing much else i can desire or dream of hmm that's very interesting had you considered that my friend now let's hear what mr brainy has to say madam you have a wisdom far surpassing these sainted monks and mainted songs you see your snakes and you hear your yakshas so by all means you're welcome to believe in them as for myself i saw a snake a few months ago but i ran away very quickly and i've never had the misfortune of dealing with a yaksha because i stay well away from the forest at night as far as us charvakas are concerned if we don't see it we don't experience it so why should we believe in it surely the only means by which we can know the truth of anything is by observing it for ourselves you can't take something that's objectively real and cook up random ideas on top of it through all your fancy philosophies take this karma nonsense for example it's very convenient that nobody except his lordship the buddha has any idea how it works isn't it what is this business of the seeds of karma blossoming into fruit huh? i'm sure this gautama fellow has just made it up to appeal to the peasants and the landowners how is it any different from that old brahman claiming that he knows that only brahmans are reborn in heaven it's all a scam all that matters is enjoying the one life we have within moderation of course may i interest you in this fine wine from gandhara by the way uh no sir but thank you for the offer i must say you've given us a lot to think about well you came to shavati for knowledge young man and it looks like you've gotten it my business in the city is done i need to be getting back to my village and my grandchildren come now i'll give you a ride to the outskirts i have heard this lord buddha fellow has got a whole grove to himself donated by one of those wealthy merchants who bought it off some prince these rich people i tell you never know what they'll get into their heads i was raised to believe that true renunciants true holy people stand upside down on their heads live on air cook themselves in pots have insects sting them all over these buddhists just live in luxury and comfort with all that they wring from the hands of hard working farmers like myself why when i was a young girl her pleasant chattering recedes into the background as we ride into the outskirts of shavati with their dense orchards and groves of trees as the sun gradually sets over the plains and the stars begin to emerge like a cascade of jewels in the inky black sky i see you are quiet there is much to talk about after all we have heard and seen but for now there is time to rest and contemplate how much things change and how much they remain the same my name is anirudh kanesetti welcome back to echoes of india a history podcast Ancient India always challenges and delights me with its complexities. There's never a black and white explanation for anything, especially something that has been so comprehensively rebranded over thousands of years as Buddhism and the vast schisming organization that is the Buddhist Sangha, perhaps by far the longest-lasting and most influential of all South Asian institutions. 
is been even more long lasting than the institution of indian kingship and is rivaled only by brahmanism which has itself taken considerable inspiration from buddhist organizations and rituals over the centuries we saw glimpses of the sangha many centuries after the death of the buddha in season 1 of echoes which had already divided into dozens of squabbling schools such as the sarvastivadins and the mahasanghikas Today, though Buddhism is still present in India in the form of Tibetan schools of Buddhism and the new Navayana school, Buddhist sanghas aren't really a major political force, but they are in Sri Lanka and Myanmar, where they have been associated with savagery and violence that even Buddha, with his endless pragmatism, would probably have considered abominations. When we think about ancient India, what often springs to mind is kings and kingdoms. We want to listen to stories of manly, manly men doing manly, manly things and being very sexy and glamorous and violent and victorious. We want to hear about their big juicy territories and how they were constantly occupied with the erection of monuments. That's a disservice to the much more complex and layered past that our ancestors actually lived in. Buddhist sanghas for example have outlived hundreds of dynasties thousands of kings they have outlasted the extinction of entire languages and cultures and you can find them on almost every corner of the earth every ecosystem every kind of society from the rice fields of southeast asia to the cherry blossom kiss cities of japan Buddhist monastic rules and ideas about society, the daily lives they wove themselves into, the economic resources they marshaled, the myths and religious practices they pioneered, all of them have changed the direction of human history and continue to shape it to this day. So if we want to understand our history a little better, we need first to understand the origins of this remarkable institution and the brilliant, ambitious, and ultimately imperfect human beings who made it. First among these people of course is Siddhartha Gautama the Buddha himself. What can we uncover of the man from the romanticism legends stereotypes and propaganda that have gathered around him just as they have with other people who have founded religions. Despite what Shorty said in the debate at Shavati we saw that there were already some complexities in the way Buddha was seen in his own time. On the one hand his followers were evidently in absolute awe of the man. On the other hand to the average person on the streets Buddhist monks were considered idle preachers living relatively comfortable lives who did nothing useful for society When we lost saw Buddha in our previous episode of Echoes he had emerged from the forest and began to preach two big ideas The first was a method for the extinguishing of suffering resulting both from the deprivation and indolence of the unequal socio-economic systems of the Gangetic plains The second was a remedy to that system a revolutionary new interpretation of the doctrine of karma with its emphasis on good intentions and actions as a means to better rebirths this fed very well into the society of his time and tapped into the universal undercurrent of human psychology which demands rewards for being good and punishments for being bad but now some decades later our farmer friend has told us that the buddhists had control of a vast property just outside the city of shavatthi We saw a friend Shorty describing the man Siddhartha Gautama as a lord, a blessed one. There seems to be quite a powerful organizational structure and the Buddhists are evidently quite controversial and well known among the many religious groups of the Gangetic plains. So, how on earth did all this happen? First, we need to try and understand just how powerful and moving Buddha's message of the extinguishing of suffering could be. 
Here's what an early Buddhist nun known only as Sumangala's mother has to say about it. Dear one who is quite free. Dear one who is quite free. I too am well freed from the pestle. My shameless husband, even the sunshade he worked under, and my pot that stinks like a water snake all disgust me. As I destroyed anger and the passion for sex, I was reminded of the sound of bamboo being split. I go to the foot of a tree and think, ah, happiness, and from within that happiness I begin to meditate. There's something so powerful in these lines. The struggles that his lady has faced, the drudgery of her daily existence, the misery of being tied to people that she despises. Two and a half thousand years later, it still rings so true to us. A generation raised to what seems like little more than a lifetime of corporate slavery and societal expectations, struggling with constant anxiety over partnerships and work. And then she hits us with something else that I know we've all experienced, no matter how briefly. Those rare occasions when many windows in our minds seem to align, when we see, really see, the wonder of the world around us, when we feel at peace in the here and now. Ah, happiness. Given all this, it's no wonder at all that people were willing to hear what Buddha was preaching to leave behind their homes and families and seek something new under his leadership. I can't imagine what it must have felt like to him to see so many people so earnestly willing to give him their all, to dedicate themselves to a cause that he believed in so strongly. It must have been so moving and also so terrifying to hold all those lives and dreams in the palm of his hand. Gradually, the simple formula that Buddha used to initiate his earliest disciples, which we saw in the last episode, Come, monk, ehi, bhikkhu, was replaced. When he started out, every renunciant who wished to join the Buddhist cause had to travel miles to find Buddha and personally receive ordainment from him. Soon after, Buddha modified the rules so every qualified monk could initiate those who wished to join them. They would say the following words, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dhamma. I take refuge in the Sangha, the new organization that Gautama was creating in order to manage all these new people who joined him. And so the famous words that are still chanted today emerged. Buddham Sharanam Gachami, Dhammam Sharanam Gachami, Sangham Sharanam Gachami. There was also a separate version for lay followers. Those people who did not leave their homes but still wished to be considered adherents of the Buddha, like Asalayana, the young Brahmin whom he debated in the last episode of Echoes. Now, how did the Buddha model this new organization, this new Sangha? Recall that he was the son of a Raja from a Gana Sangha, an oligarchy ruled by Kshatriya clans, with constitutions and rules for dividing wealth and transacting business as a joint confederacy. Buddha used this as a template to create an organization that would be capable of managing vast numbers of people, using strict but fair rules to ensure that the social divisions of the rest of the Gangetic Plains would not affect the Sangha. Just like in Agana Sangha, the Buddhist Sangha transacted business through proposing resolutions, debating them and voting on them. 
As more and more people continued to flock to the Sangha, Buddha changed the rules again. So a would-be monk would no longer just chant the words and get in. Instead, they would have to find a teacher to sponsor them, take some time to learn the basic precepts of Buddha's emerging doctrine, and then attend an assembly where their admission would be confirmed after a formal motion to that effect was passed by the assembly. Even more rules were set up to establish a minimum quorum for passing such motions. The amount of experience and the qualities a monk must have to be a mentor to younger monks and so on. Some of the rules are really interesting and tell us something about the culture and world view of the people of this time. For example, a boy could only join the sangha with his parents' consent and had to be 15 or if younger, he had to be able to scare crows. Why crows? Maybe it has something to do with the prevalence of agricultural backgrounds among the sangha. Maybe it was because it was some kind of metaphor that we no longer remember. Now, some really funny stories and rules emerge when we look at some of the ridiculous stuff that monks actually got up to. A few decades after Buddha had started out with little more than rags, he was in charge of a vast organization of hundreds, perhaps thousands, which is why he had created all those rules to make it difficult for people to get in and to ensure that only the most dedicated potential followers would become his monks. Despite all that, these guys got up to any amount of mischief that reflected badly on the Buddha and the Sangha. Here's an example. King Senia Bimbisara of Magadha wanted a mango. And so his people went to the park where the group of six Buddhist monks and their disciples were living and asked for a mango. But the park keeper told them that the monks had eaten all the mangoes and they went back and told the king. The king said, Good sirs, the monks have taken much pleasure in mangoes, yet the Lord Buddha extols moderation. And the people of the town said, How can these recluses, sons of Shakyans, not knowing moderation, make use of the king's mangoes? Monks told this matter to the Lord. He said, Monks, mangoes should not be made use of. Whoever should make use of them, there is an offense of wrongdoing. This group of six monks and their disciples were absolute mad lads, to the point that a good chunk of the fifth book of the Chula Vagga, a portion of the Vinayapitaka, which is a collection of early Buddhist scriptures and monastic discipline, seems to have been composed because these guys kept flouting Buddha's principles on living moderately. One of the most scathing critiques that Renunciants made against the wealthy in the last episode was that they were too entangled in the pleasures of daily life to be able to achieve any sort of liberation. Now, this group of six monks who were based in the outskirts of the city of Rajagaha, capital of Magadha, the easternmost kingdom in the Gangetic Plains, were constantly entangling themselves in these pleasures, forcing Buddha to make more specific rules and no doubt pissing off every monk in the Sangha as a result. Their offenses include rubbing their bodies on trees, bathing using loofahs, jumping into water happily, wearing earrings, chains, necklaces, bracelets and rings, growing long hair, shaping their hair with beeswax, using water bowls as mirrors, using makeup, attending festivals, singing the dhamma and worst of all, eating mangoes. How much cooler the sangha might have been if these guys had been a little quieter about having their fun. I find the story of this group of six monks fascinating for a few reasons. First, and most obviously, the Sangha had grown so large and scattered that Buddha was unable to keep it under control through his own personality and force of will. 
And so he had to create rules and institutions to bind everyone to what he believed in. Secondly, he was usually forced to step in when public opinion accused him of hypocrisy. In comparison to the Buddhists, other renunciation groups were far more extreme in their approach to, well, renunciation. By the time the Buddhists emerged, renunciation samannas had already been a part of society for generations, and people had a certain expectation from any group claiming to be renunciants. There's a famous example of Buddhist monks wandering around during the monsoon season, which led to people criticizing them, as narrated in the Vinaya Pitaka. How can these Shakyaputta Samanas walk on tour during the rains? Members of other sects stay in one place during the rains. Birds make nests in treetops and stay in one place during the rains. But these Shakyaputta Samanas walk on tour during the cold weather, during the hot weather and the rains. In response, the Buddha swiftly established a rule saying that monks were to remain at one place during the monsoons. following the precedent set by older sects such as the jains that was not all that the buddha borrowed from the jains but that's something we'll get to in later episodes the other interesting thing about critiques of the buddhists is they're never actually called buddhists by the general public they're called shakyaputta samannas the renunciants who are the sons of the shakya the shakyas as we recall were the kinship obsessed kshatriya oligarchy of which buddha was a member When a monk joined the Buddhist Sangha, he left behind his old status and gained a new one, that of a son of the Buddha, granting him a new relationship with his leader and his fellow monks. This is obviously a concession to the kinship-obsessed world of early India, and it's a uniquely Buddhist innovation, one that no other renunciation tradition had at the time. In fact, Buddha even recognized kinship ties as a valid reason for providing exceptions to many monastic rules. Buddhist monks could retain contact with their families even during the monsoons. They could visit battlefields to meet kinsfolk who are dying. We can see here that what Buddha is doing is kind of walking a tightrope, making some concessions to public opinion to increase membership of the sangha, while also making other concessions to ensure that the Buddhists still maintain the status of renunciants and could therefore follow his path to liberation. He didn't have everything figured out from the beginning. and he was constantly making things up as he went along to try and create something that would outlast him i really cannot recommend that you read the vinaya pitaka yourself if only to see siddhartha gautama's intelligent determined pragmatic mind constantly reacting and adapting to the prejudice of his time and the deep tides of human nature this brings us to another extremely controversial topic we've already seen in episode 2 that early india was not the most progressive place for women Although some elite women and probably a lot of working class women were able to confound societal expectations. So what did Buddha think of women? I quote the scholar Umar Chakravarti on how women are portrayed in early Buddhist scriptures. They are likened to black snakes, treated as evil smelling and adulterous. They are accused of ensnaring men and are labeled as secretive and not open. They are full of passion, easily angered, stupid and envious and have no place in public assemblies. They are incapable of carrying out business or earning a living by any profession because they are uncontrolled, envious, greedy and stupid. A wide range of restrictions was placed on bhikkhunis who were even required to offer their arms to the monks if they ran into them. No similar obligation was placed on bhikkhus. In some cases 
the bhikkhunis received severer punishments than bhikkhus for similar offenses so on the one hand we have this image of buddha the prophet the man who claimed that enlightenment was a path open to all irrespective of their caste and on the other hand we have a buddhist scriptures that are full of childish and misogynistic rules about women the legend of how the buddhist order of nuns was established is detailed in the vinaya pitaka and it brings together many of the themes we've seen so far in this season and in this episode buddha as a pragmatic reformer both a conservative and an innovator sensitive to public opinion influenced by ties of kinship and memories of his own past his stepmother and aunt mahapajapati gautami requests him thrice in a buddhist assembly to ordain women as nuns and he refuses her thrice undaunted she and other shakya women cut off their hair and renounce their lives following him when he moved to the town of vaishali the capital of the vrijji confederacy to preach there buddha's cousin and attendant the monk ananda argued with the buddha forcing him to concede that women were in principle capable of enlightenment and allowing the creation of an order of nuns mahapachapati gautami with ananda's help then asked buddha to establish a rule that would let both monks and nuns be treated equally with seniority being the sole differentiator between them to this buddha replies that is impossible ananda ananda the adherents of other religious communities whose dhamma is badly expounded will not greet women with respect how then can i prescribe a respectful greeting of women this entire story seems like pretty conclusive proof that buddha was a man of his times right down to the misogyny but we have an example from a collection of sayings of early monks and nuns called the thera theri gatha which includes verses from a former jain nun called bhadda bhadda used to pull her hair out by the roots go around covered in mud and wear only a single garment more interested in austerity than the moderate life and moral qualities preached by the buddha and then she met him and she says he ordained her with the words ehi bhikkuni kam nan this is pretty surprising because this is the formula that buddha used for his earliest disciples when the sangha was still growing professor uta huskan proposes a solution to this contradiction that is as complex as the buddha's own times according to her it's most likely that buddha did genuinely believe that women were as capable of enlightenment as anyone but on the other hand he did not seek to upend the social systems of his time and was interested in maintaining the sangha's public image if he were to allow women equal status it would have been a massive scandal that may have led to an exodus from the sangha of course it's certainly possible that his own biases also played a role on his insistence in making nuns subject to monks finally the versions of the buddhist scriptures that have survived to today were compiled well after the death of the buddha and have been transmitted down to us by male monks because all the orders of buddhist nuns have died out so they might not really reflect what buddha said or did in his own lifetime and it's very important to note there is so much controversy about the entry of women into the buddhist church they seem to have been a presence in the jain church for much earlier and it could have been that buddha took this as a precedent for letting women enter the buddhist sangha this is something we'll come back to in later episodes so what's the real truth of the matter i have no idea 
but our time today is coming to an end, my friend. You can draw your own conclusions as to this complicated, fascinating man and the societies and peoples he shaped. And next time you wonder how much a single person matters against the faceless tide of history, remember that the Buddha was a single person, a human being with the same potential for flaws and brilliance as you or I. And yet, we live today in a world that would have been totally different if not for his life. In the next episodes of Echoes, we will see how Siddhartha Gautama came to an end and widen our perspective to gradually see what was happening in the mad, innovative, violent world of the early Gangetic Plains. But for now, I will go sit below a tree and think, Ah, happiness. Hey, hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Echoes of India. As I'm sure you know, the vast and complex history of South Asia needs to be told through research, empathy and good storytelling. That takes time, effort and a lot of thinking. I'm doing Indian history full time now. Help me read, learn and write more about South Asia for you and for the generations that are going to come after us. Buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash A-K-A-N-I-S-E-T-T-I to help support Echoes of India, a history podcast, Yudha, the Indian military history podcast, the Chola Bhatura Empire meme essay page on Instagram, and Connected Histories, a YouTube channel dedicated to exploring how South Asia has shaped the world and how the world has shaped South Asia. It'll take two minutes of your time. You'll be helping me create some of the most accessible and easy to understand and critically researched content on South Asian history on the web. And you will have my everlasting thanks and gratitude. I know you'll help me out because you're awesome. There's a link in the description below. Go and click on it. And while you're at it, please support the IVM Podcast Network as well. Check out Yudha and other interesting shows on the IVM Podcast Network, on the IVM Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts.